This is the second Sunday of Advent, and since I didn't preach on the first Sunday of Advent, I'm going to say some, it's going to be kind of didactic about the season and about the themes, and then I'm going to use Mother McNeil's theme from last week about new beginnings to segue into the readings for today, and it's sort of a treat for me to get to preach on uh, a reading from Baruch. Not Bernard, Baruch, buy low and sell high, but Baruch, the original. So we'll talk a little bit about this. The general theme of the readings for this week in this cycle of uh, the Advent readings is uh, the return from exile, uh, the rescue from, from alienation and estrangement with God, the possibility of... Um, being able to reconcile ourselves with our own uh, internal demons, but also perhaps more importantly in our relational life together. And perhaps that's one of the real meanings of Advent. So with new beginnings and a start, we move then into the readings today. And we meet, of course, on the second Sunday of Advent every year, our old friend John, don't sing Jingle Bells to me, the Baptist. <laughs> Clint Fowler at St. Michael and All Angels would say that every second Sunday of Advent. And we had a, we had a couple of chapels in the church, one on one side, one on the other. And one of the chapels was dedicated to St. John the Baptist, and he had a wonderful statue of St. John the Baptist that was from Mexico. And it uh, was really quite, quite something. And that's when he, would pre he, when he would preach, he would point to the statue and say, try singing Jingle Bells to that guy. <laughs> it was a statue with him in his skin, you know, bare fur kind of thing and, and so on. So it was quite something. Uh, I mention this every time we get to Advent because it's the beginning of the church year and it affords the opportunity to speak about the liturgical year. Uh, Episcopalians are a liturgical church and we have a liturgical calendar and our year follows uh, the life of Jesus, and it is about um, how in following that life we draw some conclusions in our public worship and in our private prayer uh, about how it is we must live as Christian people. So Advent is the first season. In the origin of the Christian year, remember St. Peter and all the apostles after Jesus ascended into heaven did not immediately walk down to St. Luke's downtown Jerusalem and begin services from the Book of Common Prayer, uh, there was a period of evolution that went on with regard to uh, the creation of the, of the worship. You need to know, though, that this process began even before Jesus' death. So one of the great uh, insights of biblical scholarship and why it's important to see its importance in, in the whole role of increasing, increasing and deepening people's faith is that when we begin to understand that there was, in all probability, already a group of people up and running who believed Jesus was the Messiah and began to coalesce around that reality and to form worshiping communities even within the Jewish synagogue. So what we have today is the beginning of Advent, which by the time we get maybe to the 6th century, AD, we now firmly have the season. There are two basic cycles uh, in, the, in the church year. The, fir the, the first cycle is 
let's say, uh, Lent, Easter, Pentecost. And then the second cycle that God created was Advent, Christmas, Epiphany. So this is the second post in the liturgical year. By the time we get to the 6th century, uh, Advent was being celebrated all over Europe. But in the north, it was like Lent. And it began on November the 14th, or the day after, which is the Feast of St. Martin of Tours. So it was called in northern Europe, St. Martin's Lent. And it ran for six weeks. And the emphasis was heavily penitential. So it was very much like Lent. And in the southern part of Europe, in Italy and in the Mediterranean countries, the celebration was four weeks long. And it was, had a lighter penitential character. You probably would say figures, right? But the truth of the matter is, as things began to come together, here's what happened. We shortened the season to four weeks, and we retained some of the penitential character of the northern celebrations of Advent and began now to understand this is a universal way of celebrating Lent in Western Christianity. And I've talked to you before about Charlemagne and his advisor, Alcuin, who ran the school at Aachen. And he was the one who was responsible for developing the Christian calendar and combining a lot of things from different parts of Europe into some form of unified celebration, the Christian calendar, both with the saints' days and with the great days and seasons. So that's what we have by the 6th century. And as time has gone on, we've begun to see that it is important in the tradition as it evolved to understand Advent not in the penitential sense that many people did for a long time as sort of a short Lent, but as tinctured always as a season of hope, joy, and thinking about the coming of Christ and understanding what that might mean and has meant, and also what Mother McNeil said last week about new beginnings, because implicit in her preaching was this, Christ is always coming. Don't think about this in terms of saying, well, he came now, what we're reading about in the Bible, and then he's going to come again. I don't know when, right? Because every person that, that works on their life or seeks to be faithful in the Christian sense has had multiple examples in their own life of the coming of Christ. Maybe you didn't say that's what it was. But some new way of looking at your life in a new way, some drawing of the, connecting the dots about what the Christian tradition says or in your own in worship and in private prayer, you begin to discover what it means to speak about new beginnings, about hope, about joyfulness, about the possibility to have the conundrums and uncertainties of life come into clearer and surer focus for you. So the season of Advent is about that. Today in the readings, we have the beginning now of thinking about things like repentance, the beginning of things uh, like God's plan for the cosmos, and in the history of the people of God. So Baruch, 
is going to begin start us off with this. Here's Baruch. Baruch, the book, is not in most or all any Protestant Bibles. It's in the Apocrypha. That's what Episcopalians call this section of books. We, we had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago, and this is a perfect example to, uh, so we can reinforce it. These books were written in Greek. They were not written in Hebrew, but they were read and written by Jews who were in the diaspora. Vince Rubino asked the question about what does it mean when we use the word diaspora, and I looked it up after we finished, and I thought to myself, well, maybe you'd explain it a little clearer. The diaspora, it means scattering. So the first diaspora of Jews was in 587 B.C., the exile to Babylon. And so we then come back. I'll have more to say about that in a minute. We then come back from the exile. Then there's a second diaspora, which occurs in 70 A.D., which is when they all ran out of the city because the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD and scattered. It means, as I think, scattering. So Baruch is one of the books that's part of that group in the exile diaspora. And Baruch is an important figure in the sense that the tradition tells us he was Jeremiah's secretary, his amanuensis. So he was, you know, sort of take a letter, Miss Blue. We had, you know, Baruch, Baruch, uh, writing stuff down that Jeremiah said, who was for a time in the exile. Now here's the thing. Uh, you've heard from Father Cockrell about this too, and we've talked about it. This book was not written during the exile. This book was probably written instead of 587, 567. It was written in 200, which means the exile had, the return had begun a long time ago, about 300 years before. But it's also important to know that what is being talked about in this book uh, gives us an indication that even though the exile from Babylon had ended and people were coming back, there were many people who were yearning for the Messiah who believed that the exile had not, uh, the return from exile had not been complete. And so part of the package of those who followed Jesus was they believed he was the sign and his ministry was the sign that the restoration had taken, was taking place. And so when we read from Baruch, think about it. In 90 AD, Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. We have now the beginnings of the church. The temple's been burned down. Everything is a mess. But by then we have Christians, that is to say, Jews who believed in the Messiahship of Jesus, Forming in their synagogues and talking about what the meaning of all this is and all of a sudden some of the writings that uh, we call the Christian scriptures were creeping into their liturgy and they were reading Paul's letters and they were reading a gospel somehow in the readings in the synagogue liturgy this was causing tension and so the rabbis not the people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah the rabbis were saying to themselves, we got to determine what, the, what our sacred books are. So there was a drive as the result of the, the pressure of, of, of Christian Jews, for, for want of a better term, to say these are what our sacred books are. So Baruch 
is in the list of all Jews in the diaspora and near Jerusalem. They were reading it. But the rabbi said, now, this was not written in Hebrew. This is written in Greek, and there are a lot of other books like it. We don't want them in the canon. Christians said, we, we take the, the uh, Hebrew scriptures or the Jewish scriptures to be important and inspired, and we want all of them in because there were Jews that were in the diet in Alexandria and in other places like this who said, we have used these books for centuries and we want them in our canon. So they're in our canon. They're in the, the uh, Old Testament. If you look at a Roman Catholic Bible, you'll see them interlarded into what we call the Old Testament. In the Episcopal Church, they're kept as a separate a group of books. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they're interlarded also in. The difference is, is that uh, Anglicans say, we read these books for edification, but not for doctrine, right? Principally because, as I mentioned last time, there are some of these books which mention practices and beliefs which the, the Reformation in the 16th century rejected as not being correct, like praying for the departed <coughs> or praying for people who are already dead and, you know. So there are things like that that they said we can't read these books and use them as, for any doctrinal purposes at all, you know. And as my Old Testament professor Mishota said, you can believe that if you want to. Anyway, I mention this because Baruch is a perfect example of saying, I'm talking about the hopeful signs after the return from exile that we believe we're going to see. So even in 240 or 200 BC, we were beginning to see this kind of understanding of God's restorative purposes at work in the world. So that not only were we going to look at sort of dramatic acts that seem uh, like magical thinking, but we were going to see some species of the transformation of society by believing people, and that if we cooperate with these divine purposes, we'll get a deeper and fuller understanding of what we mean about God's kingdom, and what we mean about what God has in mind for the future. Because Advent is always about the future, in some sense. Or more to the point, it's about the importance of our past, the present, and the future. Right? So you and I are not always, as persons, we're not defined by our past, but we don't forget the past. We need to understand the present circumstances in which we find ourselves, and we need to be future-oriented, knowing that God is present to us in our lives. So this is an upbeat picture that Baruch, that Baruch is giving to us. In the reading from Philippians, we have Paul writing from prison to one of the best congregations that he founded. It is one of the healthiest congregations, and he is very pleased with his work there, but he also loves the Philippian congregation. During the process of his ministry, he was at pains to take up a collection for the Jerusalem church. This is before the destruction of the temple. And he promised that he would do that, and he sought from the congregations that he followed uh, contributions to take to Jerusalem. And the Philippians were perhaps the most faithful we would say nowadays exercise the most careful and uh, sacrificial stewardship 
in their giving. And he's thanking them for that, but he's also thanking them for their faithfulness and for being a present example of the transformative work of God as we move to thinking about the kingdom and what it's going to mean and how we understand it. So Paul is congratulating them for that and saying that uh, they're an example for uh, Christian people throughout the then Christian world. Remember Philippi and these places were not, you know, hick towns. They were cities. They had, it was an urban movement. And so he's writing to them in the middle of uh, those circumstances and he's thanking them. But today we have, we've switched by the way, you know, we go, we're on a three-year cycle of readings, which is defined by what the main gospel is that's read in each year. So we're in year C, and year C is Luke, our patron. So we began last week to read from the gospel according to St. Luke, and we will now read mainly in Luke through till Advent next year when we go back to year A. So our patron Luke has got some things that he's trying to reinforce today, and it gives me the opportunity to speak to you about the whole idea of the kingdom of God and how we might understand it, but also Luke's outlook. Luke is considered the great historian of the New Testament. It's not literal history, but we might call it the history of salvation. And he, for the ancient world, takes great pains to speak about what he believes are the historical circumstances that are part of the life and work of Jesus and part of the life and work of the Church of God. So Luke believes that as the result of the coming of Jesus, human history has been transformed, and that you and I live in this transformed history and are not only living in it and the beneficiaries of it, we are part of the makers of this history. So he's at pains to say that to us. Luke also believes more than any other gospel writer that it is part of the plan of God that the church come into being. So the book of Acts, which is his second volume, is about the beginnings of the early church. And that's what he's at pains to do. So today he introduces us to the culmination of the prophets of the Old Testament, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes on the scene preaching uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins and also promising that God is going to come now and make uh, the, the valleys fill up, the mountains get level, the roads become straight, and that somehow we will be enabled to uh, be uh, cooperators with the bringing of the kingdom of God. A couple of weeks ago, I told you I was reading a book by N.T. Wright, uh, the former bishop of Durham, called How God Became a King. And he has a thesis in the book which I think is brilliant. And uh, today we, we begin to uh, see what he's getting at. Today is the beginning of uh, coming to Christmas, right? It's Advent, coming to Christmas, moving towards Christmas. And it's the introduction, and we'll continue to read now the infancy narratives in Luke and through this during Christmas about the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus 
and the conclusion that Luke and his followers came to that Jesus represents God in God as a human being. If God were a human being and walking around, that's, this is who he would be like. And so he is writing about the incarnation. Now for centuries, most Christians have focused on the incarnation, which is the time of year now to do that, and then we focus on the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus. How you get saved. And guess what? There's a whole lot of stuff in between. Right? What's in the middle of Luke's gospel? What's in the middle of Mark's gospel? What's in the middle of Matthew's gospel? The in-between stuff. Well, what is the in-between stuff? The in-between stuff is the teaching of Jesus. It's the how-to. It's what does it mean to be a disciple. And so when we talk about the beginning, which we're doing now, which is essential to set us up, we don't just fast forward to the end. We've got to say, well, here's how we get to the end and what the end turned out to mean. So this middle stuff is extremely important. When I was in seminary, we read a lot an extremely important biblical scholar from Germany named Rudolf Bultmann. He was brilliant. But he, like many other German biblical scholars, believed that all the middle stuff was added on later and that the real primitive stuff was Jesus being crucified on the cross and rising again or, you know, all that stuff. But we weren't talking too much about the middle or the ministry of Jesus and what it all meant. So I'm, gr I'm sort of riding my hobby horse today about this so that you know that this is what's going to be coming up in some of my preaching because it's fascinating to read this because it tells us how much we're needed for God's work in the world. Don't think about this only in heroic terms. Like we're going to, you and I are going to somehow, you know, move this building over three feet uh, if we needed to by sheer will. But we are, in fact, uh, necessary for God's plan for the cosmos. And so John the Baptist is announcing now uh, from this, that perspective what's going to happen and that he will tell us next week about the coming of Jesus. He has already really described how this is the fulfillment of the return from exile. And the theme is going to continue to come up. How do we understand what it means? Now, in a, in a culture where we're all thinking about our religious instincts and our spiritual life in subjective personal terms, maybe the way to connect with that would, to say, would be to say, you know, um, I have felt lost and alienated and somehow confused uh, about many things, and I can see my spiritual pilgrimage is the process by which I became less confused, even if for a little while and got confused again. The fact is, is that that may be what the whole process of the spiritual life is, coming to yourself. It's coming to understand what that might mean. So the Advent season is about that. It's about what does it mean to come out of a sense of uh, confusion a joyful person, which is part of this season, is a person who believes 
that in a sure and steady way, the conundrums and uncertainties of our lives individually can come into surer and clearer focus, and that you and I will be able to make sense out of what it is that's going on. And I know that all of you have had at least some of that in your life, or have, you know, had small glimmers of that for a period of time. You were a little more sure than you were before about some of these things. And then maybe it raised new questions as a result of that, and you've now back into understanding this as sort of a pilgrimage, following Jesus on the way. So this week, think about um, reconciliation and return. Uh, give thanks for what will come to us as we read the readings that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And by virtue of that great gift, we are able now to feel the confidence to move forward and to understand our lives in a deeper and fuller way. Uh, that, in fact, may be ultimately the best Christmas present of all. Amen.